0: This episode of Strange Assembly is brought to you by www.l5rsearch.com. L5rsearch.com is a comprehensive online L5R card database with tools to assist in optimizing your decks, proxy and cards, or simply finding out about unusual cards. Once you know what you need, www.l5rshop.com puts cards in your hands quickly and economically. This is Strange Assembly, episode 151, Revenge of the Naga. Hey,
1: this is Chris Justice. Forum folks know me as Kalyar. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And I am, as always, Chris Stevenson. This is the, what, two times in three episodes I've let someone else talk first after the break. What is wrong with me? This is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. We are going to be talking here today with the other Chris, who was the winner of the Legend of the Five Rings Big Deck Tournament at Gen Con. He's also a, a Naga stalwart, so I suspect he will have something to say about the imminent return of the Naga. Is a year and a half count as imminent?
1: It's, it's, it's imminent enough. We'll take it.
0: You didn't have to stay asleep for a thousand years this time? That's right. Okay. That's right. Probably by now, anybody who's listening to this knows what the big deck format is, but right, just in case you don't, two decks, each with a hundred cards, and no more than one copy of any one card. You can use almost anything. How long is the ban list now? 20-ish cards? or?
1: I don't even think it's that. I think it's like 14.
0: Okay. So... You won the big deck tournament at Gen Con, so tell the people about your deck and tell us about, I don't know, the tournament, the environment. What, what, what should people do to try to play big deck?
1: Well, first off, I love the big deck format, mostly because I'm a—I'm a very strong believer in having there be some sort of a playable legacy format for L5R. You know, we're staring down the 20th anniversary of the game here, and we have we have all these thousands of cards, and I think that it's very tragic that for most of the long-term players, uh, that huge back catalog of cards does very little except take up binder space and space in my closet. Pure Legacy is sort of off-putting for a lot of people. It's a very, very fast format. Pure Legacy is pretty much done by turn three on slow games, and it's really hard to get into from a money investment standpoint. You know, you, you need three copies, generally, of quite a few cards from way back in the catalog, and it's very hard to put together, and it's very financially demanding. It's disappointing for a game that's over in five minutes. With big deck, it's a huge deck construction challenge, but it's much easier to get into. The proxy allotment makes it a lot easier to play but it hasn't been as well studied in terms of deck development as, like, Arc is. So the metagame's a little weird, and the deep catalog lets some strange stuff happen sometimes. The deck that I played is a combo deck, which is sort of unexpected, because in a 100-100 Highlander format, fishing for a single card to win does not seem like a good strategy. It interacts with the Stronghold that was the Emperor Edition Draft Stronghold. Uh, Most of the Draft cards are still legal in the format at this time. Critically, that lets you buy cards face-down as holdings to avoid Gold Screw in Draft, but it also avoids Gold Screw in Big Deck. And then I fish out Divining Pool, which lets you point at a... I was going to say target, but it doesn't target. It lets you point at a face-down card in a province or in play and turn it face-up. So none of that process actually checks entering play restrictions on the face-up side. So I get to play with all kinds of crazy stuff, like all three really broken versions of Chagatai and the best-of Kami collection and a bunch of clan champions from the game's history and have them all get together in a big party and smash some face.
0: Okay, now... I looked back on the Shiro big deck forums, and I know that there you were talking about testing with the deck and trying to be able to win with the deck even if you did not hit the divining pool combo. But I have to admit, when I look at the deck list, where I frankly don't recognize what half of the personalities are because they're like either giant guys or random cheap Shugenja, what is your game plan if you don't hit the divining pool?
1: Okay, the big, there's been a couple of different versions of this deck floated around. I played it throughout the big deck tournaments last arc, and, and several groups worldwide have played around with some version of this. One of the big metagame counters to this deck tends to be people who run a Tomo-sensei. If I'm basing my strategy around tutoring for a single card, and they can remove that card from the game trivially, then that's a good way to break the engine. I built sort of as a backup strategy against Atomo Sensei. uh, You'll know that looking at my deck list, I'm running pretty much all of the playable elemental dragons. They're big, they're cav, many of them have really aggressive abilities, and the drawback to them is always that they have a very high honor requirement and a fairly aggressive gold cost. But the deck's ability to manufacture holdings for free and its ability to gain two honor on any turn where I'm not declaring an attack, means I can start dropping those elemental dragons as quickly as turn two if I need to. That's pretty much my backup win condition, is that I mill through the deck and throw a giant pile of dragons at you.
0: So, what, in your opinion, are the the sort of decks that somebody would be looking at if I was sitting down and saying, okay, I want to try to play big deck... What are the sort of decks that I, I should expect to see at a big-deck tournament?
1: Well, big-deck's are really strange, because since there's a smaller player base for it than Arc or Strict, and there hasn't been as much time put into theory crafting the environment, you'll see a lot of strange stuff at actual big-deck tournaments. Uh, I've played in four now, and I've seen pretty much everything that you could contemplate seeing, from stuff that I consider A-list to things that are really off-the-wall. The deck that I faced at the finals at Gen Con was something that I had never even considered. As far as base archetypes go, there is kind of a paper rock scissors aspect to the environment. Dishonor is extremely strong. In fact, I pretty much have no viable game against strong Dishonor decks that run a Tomo Sensei. Uh, Adam Carey has a deck that I've never actually beaten. But, the Dishonor problem is that Shadowlands Military is one of the A-list decks in the format. So, playing Dishonor means that you're playing the lottery, that you're not going to see too many of those Shadowlands players. And, right now, because the current big deck environment lets you do gold pooling like ivory, but runs the Emperor Edition starting holdings, so everyone has a ton of cash on hand right at the start of the game. And... Yoritomo Sensei, which makes all your holdings cheaper, is the engine that drives most of the military decks in the format. So Shadowlands Military with Yoritomo Sensei is amazingly aggressive out of the box, and is a really big problem for Dishonor in the metagame environment. Honor honor Clock decks work very well. In fact, I only won this really because I got lucky in my games against an Honor Clock deck but a lot of people shy away from it because it's a little bit more luck-based against the Dishonor engine and against the military deck, and I don't think, in general, most of the L5R player base shies away from Honor when they have other options. Paper, Rock, Scissors-wise, I think this engine beats stuff like Shadowlands Military, even with Yoritomo Sensei, very consistently. I lose to Dishonor. It's sort of a coin flip against Honor. You'll see a lot of unicorn. You'll see anything that has gold, good gold production. Big guys tends to tends to run the day for for military.
0: Yes, I, I think I'm trying to think when, when in the preview episode. I really, all I had to say was big deck it was like, well, I think generic unicorn and crab military is good, and it seems like with the change to gold costs, Shadowland should be good since they were all designed to cost two more.
1: Yeah, Shadowlands is real strong with the gold cost change and with Yoritomo Sensei plus gold pooling. Generic unicorns pretty good. Norikazu Sensei unicorn is is a deck to beat. Um, events, obviously, in the game's history, you know, we can point at power events as being game changing cards all the way back to to you know Imperial Edition and making events not work is pretty good.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, I, I just imagine if you. You think how much people, uh, hate Purge of Fudoism now, and, uh, right back from the start of the game, you've had Iris Festival, just destroy all Shadowlands cards.
1: Yeah, and, and ironically, it's even stuff that's less subtle than that, but, but winds up having a bigger impact. Stuff like Colot Duplicate and Wanderers Revealed are, are cards that change the outcome of a game in Big Deck. That's actually one of the things that I recommend as far as deck construction. I like big deck because I'm a big deck construction guru. I I always have been back all the way to the 90s when I got started in this game and when I played that other card game. And big deck needing you to to look at 200 unique cards for deck assembly is sort of the ultimate deck construction challenge. And so I would be a a better player in the main environments if I made a few... a few fewer play mistakes in general, but here, deck construction tends to be what wins or loses you the game. So I, I get to have a lot of fun in this format. But no, things like when you're designing a deck, things like knowing what you're going to do to deal with events are huge. I stand behind this deck that I built, but in some ways I got very lucky. Because I I never, in all of Gen Con, I didn't see any Atomo Sensei opponents. I never had any of my events negated. Event negation is huge. I run just about as much event negation as it's possible to run in the format. And if I, if I was going to rebuild this deck and do it again, I would actually swap in the three or four event negation cards that I'm not running. Because it's, it's just so huge being able to shut down those, those single powerful effects off the dynasty side.
0: So now I have to ask you, as I'm going to designate you as the representative of the big deck community, why do you guys keep banning my strongholds? What am I supposed to play in this format? Come on, knock it off. Well,
1: the the bans on the dragon strongholds that that let you pretty much ignore the fact that it's a hundred card fate <laughs> deck and play with a five card fate deck of your choice. Those bans came. You know, I'm not on the committee that decides what gets to stay or go in in big deck, but But I understand the philosophy behind the bands, because they made the game play very differently for those decks than playing anything else in the format did. And that's actually part of why I hope when they take a look at, uh, I I know with the Siege stuff coming out, and then the results of this Gen Con, that that at some point here fairly shortly, there's probably going to be a review done on the band list for Big Deck. And that's kind of, I actually kind of hope they ban this thing that I built. I'd like to see the stronghold go. Not because I think that this deck in and of itself is deforming to the environment, but it does not play under the same assumptions that anything else does. The trick with divining pool is cute, but the fact that I get to ignore holding distribution entirely is really, I think, the reason why it probably needs to go. The dragon deck gets to pick... Those dragon strongholds get to pick the fake cards they want. (laughs) I get to pick the holdings I want, as long as they're blank two-for-twos. But I can have as many of them as I need, and I don't have to draw into them. I think they're also going to have to look at Yoritomo-sensei, though, because Yoritomo-sensei provides just absolutely crazy gold acceleration if they're going to keep both gold pooling and the EE starting holdings. I played against a couple of ridiculous ridiculously fast Yoritomo sensei powered military decks, and against anything that played a legitimate game, I would have lost. In my round one, I, I I won because he started his second turn down two provinces, and that's probably not very fair. But but if that weren't the case, that would have gone differently. I make it sound like this format's really broken. It has a, it can be very broken. The joke that we all make at these big deck events is that sometimes you just get big decked. There are combinations of cards that just about every deck you can possibly build in the format can flip together that are just off the chart powerful because that's what the legacy environment looks like. But with the hundred hundred Structure. Most of the time, that doesn't happen. You're not going to see like turn one commie very often out of most decks. And realistically, every deck should have a suite of cards in fate to deal with that kind of situation happening. I also think more people should consider playing non-military stuff in the format. I uh, I beat an honor deck in the in the semifinals, and I'm I'm very embarrassed here because I've forgotten the name of the gentleman who played it. But I also faced him during the Swiss rounds, and, you know, we played a total of four games, and I lost two of them. And if those had been in a different order, you would be talking to somebody different as the big deck champion here. But as it happened, I lost the one game in Swiss, and then lost one out of three in in the semis. But honor's very strong, and it's very strong against the field. I think it will be a better choice if your Tomo Sensei gets benched. But in general, I think that the environment just needs more people to play it. Uh, having a more mature metagame will strengthen the environment a lot. You know, I don't think people are playing a lot of event negation right now. I don't think people are playing, there's not a lot of Otomo Sensei in the format to stop combo decks. You know, I have backup win conditions for it. I can, I can, you know, try and run you down with dragons, but running you down with dragons is never going to be as good as running you down with Kami.
0: Or with two gold dragons, for that matter. Yeah. Okay, so what else did you uh, hit up when you were at Gen Con? I'm I'm sure you played in something other than the big deck tournament.
1: Absolutely. Um, I, uh, you know, I did some some non-L5R stuff for, for my first day, but I also played in the main event, i I was qualified in from some shenanigans during the kote season and uh in the main event i you know I knew that this main event had the the sort of novel tier structure where there were winner where you didn't have to make the traditional cut to be influential on the storyline, so I went with a deck that i um I was trying to make storyline points with rather than playing something that I think is really the strongest thing in the environment. Um, as it turns out, it wasn't the strongest thing in the middle of the pack either. Uh, but it does sort of lead into the, another L5R topic that I'm passionate about because the deck that I was running was based on non-corrupt non-humans. It's out of the Mantis box, but I ran pretty much every non-shadow, it was all entirely non-shadowlands non-human people. Including pretty much everything Naga related that you can squeeze into a deck.
0: I don't, did, did something happen relating to the Naga at Gen Con?
1: I, I believe that there was something that happened to, to the Naga at Gen Con. Turns out that by, uh, by defeating the Shahis male, who's the Dark Naga, for, for those of you listening who are not in fact Naga lore fanatics, that the Naga will be returning as a playable faction in 2016. And I am one of many, many remaining old-school Naga players who's extremely excited about this. I've, uh, I've long been an advocate of the Naga's participation in the storyline. I'm a strong believer that the Empire benefits from having a, a live faction that is not a Rokagani faction, but is not, strictly speaking, the bad guy. That's not the Shadowlands or or the Yodotai or whatever strange things are going on in Ivory Kingdom's plotlines that that make the Rokagani have to try and be friends with somebody else. Plus, who doesn't like snakes, right? Come on, right?
0: The the Rattlings do not like snakes. Well,
1: yeah. But oh
0: wait, they're gone now, so it doesn't they,
1: matter. They were very, they were very tasty, and and now they're gone. Um, <laughs> you know, I I mean, I I do appreciate the 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 standpoint of the rattling players. I was never a very big rattling fan because I kind of had the perception that they replaced my faction. But I, I especially was coming up on on the anniversary of the game start, and then I I like seeing the Naga back in. It's been a long time, you know. We had a last stronghold in gold uh, right before gold, actually. But it's it's uh, it's easy to overlook that the the Naga are actually one of the eight oldest factions in the game. They are debuted in the Shadowlands expansion along with the Scorpion Clan, so they uh, they predate the Mantis considerably and the Spider by decades.
0: They. They predate the Shadowlands Horde.
1: <laughs> yes, they they predate the Shadowlands Horde box, which was two expansions after them. So, you know, Ivory has made a push to make kind of a more old-school feel for the game. And I think, I I hope that a lot of people will appreciate that, that going back to the having the Naga return brings us back to a more old-school set of faction availability also.
0: Next step... We're still going to have 10 legal clans, but we're going to get rid of Mantis and Spider and add back in Imperials and the Shadowlands Horde. I am sure that will make everyone happy.
1: I can't think of any reason why anyone would object to
0: that. (laughs) It it turns out it's a lot easier to add factions than get rid of them, which is probably why with their 14, 15 factions, something crazy like that at the... Before gold came and they just called them back down to eight.
1: Yeah, well, it was a little out of hand. And some of them were themes that I think really are better handled inside existing clans. You know, the, the ninja faction was really interesting, but we see ninja stuff from the Scorpion point of view, and then here in the modern era, we see the shadow ninja stuff in the spider. And there's nothing that doesn't fit there. I mean, the tribute to the original Ninja box, we saw last arc with the Spider Ninja box. And, you know, to the extent that Spider was performing last arc, that was the go-to box for them. That was good. And and it got to feature, I think it was better than a lot of people gave it credit for, and not just because I'm friends with Sparks. But I think that... that things like that and like how monk has been more or less rolled back into dragon with some a little bit here and there in the other clans we don't lose any of that theme you know i don't want to i don't want to go on record as advocating for dropping factions because my faction got dropped and so i know that that sucks but at least with most of the factions that got retired there was some place for them to go the monks got to go back into dragon, ninja got to go back into scorpion. There's been a uneven but decent representation of Ronin things to do over the years for the Taturi's army players. Naga never really had a thing to do. The the Mantis sort of usurped some of our mechanics, but I think that was as much a case of the old-school Naga personality base being really awful, and less a case of the Mantis really hitting the themes that made Naga uniquely appealing for the Naga players. In the case that there might have been a spirit loyalist out there somewhere, I, I guess I'm sorry for, for him too, but... But no, I do, I do think it's easier to add clans than to remove them. I think it's easier to add themes than to remove them. But the loss of the Naga has never been something that really had a good replacement to my worthwhile enemies who play Shadowlands. I don't think the Shadowlands Horde has been something that's been replaced very well either. I know that that's a topic of a great deal of debate over in Spiderland, but I I do think that there should be some card space for the bad guys.
0: Yes, well I mean I have several things there. First, anybody who did not think that the Spider Goju Stronghold was good is crazy. That box was bonkers. <laughs> the the rest of the spider card base was god awful, but if if spider had actually had personalities that were any good, that box would have just been broken. I well actually yeah, the box was broken, it just didn't matter because the everything else was just weighing it down. Yeah, yeah. But I think you're you're right. I think some of the factions that went away didn't really need to find a home. Like you, you mocked the spirits, but right, they just kind of came and went. And when the game was was going in flux, the the ninja faction came and went. I guess I don't know how much I agree with you on the whole. They went back into the scorpion thing because that was a completely different kind of ninja. I mean, the kind of ninja that now are, are in spider, but they were also an enemy that kind of came and they were the big bad and then they mostly went away not that there wasn't something here every once in a while and there's the shadow dragon running around but they were just not in the story in a a normal sort of way I, i also think that there's a lot of those factions that these days would be better exemplified by a a sensei or or even allegiance cards maybe, like a spirit box. I think if you had something like Spirit Wars now, they would not make a spirit faction. You would just have sensei or allegiance cards or something that would represent, you know, which of the imperial candidates you were supporting.
1: Right, right. Now I think that you would have allegiance cards to show your support for the Taturi dynasty or show your support for the Steel Chrysanthemum. And you probably then wouldn't have the crazy spirit box. It's tough to be a spirit loyalist when the only stronghold you ever had got banned so fast it never actually got played in a tournament. <laughs>
0: uh yeah, and uh, I, I am kind of surprised that there isn't pretty good in big deck. <laughs> yeah, six six provinces and your opponent is a giant monsters, so who cares if you're a zero or a six? Um uh, But I'm kind of surprised that there is not a Shadowlands something. I I have to say, when I saw Ivory, and there are so many undead in Ivory Base, I was really expecting there to be some sort of necromancer sensei coming out. And that, I mean, unless they're saving it for a line, and not a line in the sand, or, you know, they've already announced it, but I've forgotten the name. Whatever it is that's after Alitz,
1: yeah, um you know. the next thing. So have I, actually. It, yeah. Um but but no, I, I was shocked that there's not well, they can't call it Jogoku sensei because there actually already was one of those, but um I I I'm shocked that there was not some sort of Shadowlands support sensei. we have this ton of undead cards and they're all just binder fodder. Nobody's gonna play that zombie commander guy. Um and even most of the Oni are amazingly unplayable in the current environment. The Mantis Ogre Boats deck gets away with running a little bit of that stuff, but absolutely nobody is going to put Onino Hatsusuru in a deck, because he loses you like nine or seven or nine honor counting the use of his ability. And there's just not deck space for that, with no way to mitigate it, and Dishonor being strong, and Nexus being in the format. I'm just, I'm... I think maybe they shied away from it because they wanted to keep Dishonor strong, and they were worried that that maybe a strong dishonor resistant sensei would cause a problem. I, I don't really know. I, I I'm really just just guessing here. Um, I'm still hopeful that we'll see one at some point. Um, I'd like to see those cards see a little more play.
0: It, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Obviously, uh, they have to be balanced and all that. But now let me ask you: since you were actually in uh, the main event, you haven't had the. Like I said this is episode one fifty one. Uh, we've already recorded episode 150 uh, where we talk about off Five Gen Con, but you haven't had the opportunity to to hear that. But one of the things we talk about was that sort of two-tiered cut system at the main event and the second chance. And I at least thought that that was really cool because it lets you combine, you know, the real strict you got to earn it to get into the top system with the sort of, hey, all sorts of people can have the fun of, you know, making the cut in some way but in the main event literally everyone who didn't drop made the cuts so how did that feel from inside the main event
1: well i i think that it was an extremely well intentioned tournament design decision that was obviously invented with the hope that there would be more than 64 players present you know we're still dealing with the after effects of what last arc did to tournament turnout, and it would have been, a—I think it would have been a different case if we'd had 100 or 110 people in that event instead of 64, or we didn't, we had like 62, I think. Um,
0: To to be clear for the people at home, the tournament started with more than that, not a ton more than that, but the tournament did start with more than 62 people. It just finished with only that many, because there were people who dropped.
1: People who dropped, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and there was a very large population of people who intentionally played in the Second Chance Tournament instead of in the main event, because, and this has happened in the past, the the specific story prize for the Second Chance Tournament was a way more appealing story prize than the story prize for the main event. Huh. You know, outside of the defending the, the city segments and stuff, Dealing with Paneki's disgrace is something that, you know, especially the Scorpion players, but, but that quite a few other people were really interested in. And right offhand, I actually don't remember the specific story benefit for the main event.
0: Wow. That's, that's interesting because I would go the opposite way. I thought that the second chance. Storyline prize was pretty lame. Like, we, I get to help the scorpion do something. Aren't I awesome? Whereas the, you know, the main events, you actually got to pick a side for your clan in the, at least temporarily, in the, the big meta story.
1: Oh, right, 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 right. The, the fact that I'm a, that I'm a Naga loyalist and I play Naga based things, even when I'm currently playing seriously, does does sometimes damage my ability to remember that there's there's political events as wins, um, <laughs> but no. I Panicky's disgrace in part because Panicky's disgrace's origin was in such a great fiction. I think that it it attracted quite a bit of attention. It may just be because I'm friends with a bunch of the Scorpion players, and so my census of who thought that was cool was is a little
0: biased, but. And I do think it worked out very well the way it did because, yeah, uh, right, taking down the disgrace is very much a Scorpion thing, which is why I'm glad that the storyline result was you help the Scorpion do it, not you do it instead of the Scorpion. Sure. And I think that worked out reasonably well where the way they let them do the storyline draw for the second chance, the Scorpion it is just a scorpion one so it's just going to be a pure scorpion takedown and they just got to the winner who's Adam Carry again right it's the same same so yes you know he he just got to make sure that the scorpion he wanted to be the one who took down the disgrace was the guy who who did it correct so, correct yeah. but
1: but the those prizes aside i i think that the the idea of making there be some more participation or some possibility of impact deeper into the player pool for for GenCon's main event is probably a good one. Um, I, I feel that it's a little controversial saying that because the the other side of the coin is that we should be giving story credit and storyline rewards to people whose decks perf- and and play perform the best, and so are the people at the top of the pool. But I would like to think that there's something to be said for telling other stories down the line, not all of which maybe should end well. You know, we we had uh, uh, several of the pools from the main event and the second pool from the second chance picked people to get them killed. Because they got murdered by
0: snakes.
1: (laughs) So the story prizes for the slices deeper into the participation, I don't think should necessarily always be positive. But it still gives you the feeling, and I don't want to suggest that we should go back to storyline prizes like, congratulations, you win the Ancestral Sword of the Hante by having your clan champion disemboweled by it. But I, I do think that there's something to be said for, for having some sort of storyline prize deeper into the cut um, to give a little deeper breadth of what's going on in Rokugan. You know, that, that we have these people at the top, the, the, the top performing tables and the winners of these events, and I don't want to do anything to, to downplay their accomplishments, um, but they make the big headline events, and then we have, People from other slices who get to have some influence over some of the rest of what happens associated with these big Rokugan shaking events.
0: Well, uh, first, Sato was a real dirtbag. He totally deserved to get stabbed in the gut. Second. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, second. I think to some extent you can avoid that by having. I mean, I, by knowing it in advance, you you can't really... Okay, I would say okay, you can't really complain. Okay, anybody can complain about anything. But I think you have less of an uproar if you know in advance you're choosing someone to die. But I, I could also see that doing something interesting. Like, uh this year for the Cote, we had points for participation uh right you just you just showing up you yes. got a point i wonder if you could have something like that but jazz it up a little bit by having just having something like well top 16 is the cut or top 8 or whatever and then top 32 or 16 you get the participation point so you you're in some way right you're you're actually objectively taking away from people but now the point that people are earning, they're actually playing for a little bit, and it gives them something to play for when they're 3-2 or 2-3 in the final round, because now, you know, winning and getting up to 3-3 secures something, uh, for your clan that you, you, you appreciate that point, maybe in a way that you don't if you get it just by showing up.
1: Right, right. Well, and I think that that kind of thing encourages Clan loyalty, you know? We're always going to have... The decks that win major events tend to be the best decks in the format because that's how it works, right? But, at the same time, we still want to encourage clan loyalty because clan loyalty is what makes L5R a really great game and distinguishes it from everything else in the market. Nobody, Nobody's passionately loyal about the story time that Blue gets, you know? Um... But it's hard to have those two goals coexist, because at at any there's obviously always some debate about what's going to be the best deck. and And I don't think that l five r tends to be an environment that has a single best deck, but there's clearly a tier one and then everybody else. And tournament breakdown attendance breakdowns, You know, obviously there's a lot of bandwagoning towards the stuff that's perceived as going to win, but if we make it so that there's more participation effects on the storyline, even if it's just head counting that has some sort of impact, or if there's story effects that can come from deeper slices in the really big events like Gen Con, that provides an incentive for people who say, well, okay, I'm not a player who's probably going to make it to the top table but at least I can go play my clan instead of the clan of the month and have good things or at least story things happen for them and I think that's great for the life of the game
0: yes clan, clan loyalty is a, a great blessing and a great curse for L5 and a Bar. great curse uh, it, it makes it hum and it makes the design's job so incredibly difficult
1: it does it does especially when when you know because nobody wants to be the clan at the bottom and and there's always been a perception that that rotates somewhat but then it it really hurts when somebody's been at the bottom a couple of times and and I do understand that because historically back in the pre-gold era that was my clan i mean naga was never we didn't win any of the major events. There were there were a handful of small things that that Naga players did pretty well at, but but there was never any real shot at Naga winning Gen Con,
0: you know? No, I'm, I'm trying to think. The only I feel like the most tournament noteworthy thing I can think of about Naga was wasn't there at the point in time when they actually had a tiebreaker for winning, uh, to, or a tiebreaker system to determine who won when games went to time and the final tiebreaker was like force on the board and you could build some sort of Naga deck to that just played to go to the draw and then outforce you with nobody having advanced their win condition? Well what actually the 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 big thing that
1: happened there was that um uh in one of the Gen Cons, and it's your escapes me, I'm gonna eyeball guess it was nineteen ninety eight. There were actually two Naga decks, and Naga throughout most of its history, including then, had as one of its themes—not that there were really themes pre-Gold—but but had as one of its themes um, force global force multipliers. You could put stuff on the board, and you could make it so that everything gave everything a force a force bonus, and so you you, you generated these huge rolling armies if nothing disrupted the engine. Of course, something always disrupted the engine and then you died horribly. But in this one Gen Con, there were actually only two Naga players, and because Swiss pairings are a tool of evil, uh, they were immediately paired against each other. And this is the, this is pretty much the only, you know, Naga Gen Con story that's ever happened because in an effort to demonstrate the Naga's racial solidarity, this current Recent Shahismail thing notwithstanding, they refused to go to war against each other. So instead, um, they played to time and then counted army development. And the player who had the better, the, who had the bigger force count, the other player conceded. Uh, it was Nick Ola um, who got a card as Olya, and I have long since forgotten his opponent's name, but. Uh, it attracted some attention for a while as being, you know, hey, look at the naga players playing for clan loyalty instead of trying to necessarily win, uh but then people forgot about it because the naga decks couldn't win, so it it didn't really matter. Um and so <laughs> so I do I do understand the standpoint of how it how it really sucks to be uh to be the clan that's on the bottom and then be the clan that's on the bottom more than once, so you know we've we mentioned Spider last arc as having a really amazing stronghold and then no support to follow it through, and that's you know at least as far as arc play has or as far as uh, yeah as far as arc play has gone, that's sort of been Spider's story here except without the really amazing stronghold.
0: They, they they have not good would be an understated way to put their their status in arc. Um, they're much better in strict so. I would think so. That's, I, again, you you haven't heard this from last time. I'm hoping to be able to get the data from whatever happened at, with, with the attendance and and the clan breakdowns at the Gen Con events. I know that's pre-ALITS, but even pre-ALITS, I, I thought that Spider and Crab would be much better in strict than they have been in ARC. I mean, they've both been awful in ARC. Uh, but I, I have no idea how much any of them ended up doing well with, you know, hordes of little guides with Fear and Melee 2s or Range 2s or whatever.
1: Yeah, and I I don't really have that answer for you either. I know that, like, with the Second Chance Tournament, Spider's outcomes there were perhaps deformed by the fact that just about every Scorpion player in the place was playing in the Second Chance event. And, uh, And even in... Even in strict, spiders not super happy to see dishonor all over the board.
0: Especially, I think that yeah, the going second to the dishonor is the especially unfortunate thing there. It's
1: it's extremely rough. I'm I'm sure it's a topic that's come up on uh, on these podcasts before, but I'm very hopeful that Ivory Two, the B side of the strongholds, will be designed a little bit more aggressively. Uh, going second has been a drawback in this game since 1995, <laughs> so it's it's really always been bad to not start. Um, I think they're on the right track for doing something about that, but I, I do think we still have a little ways to go.
0: Uh, yes, I, you know, I'm I'm usually not really that concerned with what may or may not be in a future set it's sort of like i'm just going to play with what i have now and when you start showing me stuff in the next set i'll start showing you stuff so nobody ever gets sympathy for me when they get the but i want them to preview everything all at once and they i don't care but yeah. i i would like to see uh to see what they're going to do with the b-sides for ivory Two. That would be very nice. Those Ivory Two has gone to press now, so whatever it is, it's done. It it is done. So, but hopefully, since they were, they only went. It wasn't too long ago that it went to press. I think it would have been apparent enough from Ivory One how Ivory One was going that they did, in fact, need to juice it up. So I think that they, i mean they have to have done that I, I would be extremely disappointed if we hit ivory 2 and it's the exact same strongholds and they're unless they've just done something else substantial somewhere in the rules or in the card pool to, to change that i think that would be very disappointing
1: yeah and and i don't i don't think that's going to be the case you know i i think that there's been the realization that some of these strongholds and especially the b sides were maybe a little bit conservative and you know i i with with other players, I rail on on some of the specific decisions that design makes as as much as anybody else does, but in general, I think they're doing an extremely good job here with Ivory, um, and I I think they they do have a good vision for what's going on in the course of the game, and so I'm pretty optimistic that that they'll have recognized that there was a a missed opportunity there, and that we'll see something to to push us in the direction that that was supposed to go.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that actually does feel, to me at least, like one of the few broad miscalculations made with ivory. I mean, obviously there are individual things like, why does the Kagi Sensei have no drawback and work for every deck? I don't get it. Right, right. But the, right, that's just one card. There's always going to be individual things, but the, it, it, it kind of feels clear from the ivory strongholds that they just across the board misjudged and and somehow thought that going second was not much of a drawback anymore. We were going from a system where you got bamboo harvesters, and for the most part, you look at the B-sides and you're like, I'd much rather have bamboo harvesters than this. Absolutely.
1: I, I really think it was just the case. You know, Emperor... Emperor owed a lot of its pacing and design to stuff that was put out in Lotus. And I don't know whether it was ever really confirmed or not, but there's a lot of card-to-card comparisons. And I think that some of the Emperor design was really a desire to try to replay Lotus but not break it this time. And I don't, you know, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial when I say that I don't think that worked very well. And so I think with some of the early ivory design, I think there was an intentional motivation to be a little conservative about... As- new aspects of the power curve. And I think the Stronghold B-sides were a casualty of that. Most of them are very, very minor, linear changes to the Stronghold. And the couple that do something that's remarkable, you know, they stand out. The Manus Stronghold stands out, and and statistical analysis has demonstrated that Manus actually is pretty okay going second.
0: And they're the only one that... Uh...
1: They are the only one. Yeah, they're
0: still slightly better going first, but they uh, they actually do do well. I yeah, I, I Emperor Edition. <laughs> my brief summation of what Emperor Edition was a casualty of is Forgotten Legacy.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can't hate too much on the concept of Forgotten Legacy because it's a Naga themed direct to player expansion, and I put my you know pre-2000 era clan loyalties above common sense most of the time but objectively there was a lot in Forgotten Legacy that was a problem for the environment and it was a problem for the environment for way too long
0: Forgotten Legacy was pushed I think because if a direct player set does not sell well it is extremely bad financially for the company if they get stuck with, with a bunch of that left sitting around in a warehouse somewhere and I th- think it was pushed to make sure that that didn't happen and I think that that then basically set a you know Emperor then tried to match that so it, it would actually be exciting when it came out and uh, oh well
1: right luckily Emperor is behind us now except-
0: yes yes
1: but I, I I do think that the Ivory changes to the game have been positive. Um, I think that 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 the approach that they're taking to resolving some of the problems that Ivory develops, you know, even if they may have banned both of my planned decks for the uh, for the winter season, um, <laughs> I do think that those are that those are positive steps. I look forward to Ivory two, um, and to see them continue to. Sort of get an idea about how these changes need to make the gameplay. I'm not at all personally biased. That I hope that they get a really good handle on this before 2016, so that the Naga can do something really successful this time.
0: That yeah, well, you know what? And that's that. That would be interesting. That will present another design challenge. I'll have to. <laughs> I'd say it's probably a little early to ask Reese about how they're going to tackle that. But right, they. On the one hand, when you launch Naga, they're going to be you, you want you really want to launch them as a least playable faction. you don't want to launch them and have them stink because you need people you want people to get excited about it. actually I think the first word was right you need people to get excited about about it when you're launching a new faction but if you aren't actually releasing Naga as a thing until 2016 then it's very hard to pack that much power into that small a number of cards without it causing a problem. So you guys may actually start to really see Naga cards in the middle of 2015 so they can lay a foundation.
1: Well, I mean, especially if we have crossover sets. You know, I I know that that dual bug crossover sets have been sort of the bane of set power balance forever. I, I don't really know if they're planning on I don't understand all the new
0: everything's a dual bugged crossover set.
1: Right, right, because there's the there's the two the two parts of each of these arcs. So yeah, I I expect that in twenty fifteen in the lead up to that we'll see more Naga. Of course, we see some Naga now. In in Arc we obviously still have a couple of the unique hangers on from Coils. And there's some followers, and of course then there's there's also uh there's also Zenithar in the format.
0: Sure. Yeah, I, I killed him repeatedly on Thursday at Gen Con. <laughs> yeah, well play like Playing as the Dark Naga, I figured all of the things being equal. That's the guy I should kill. He's a traitor. Why is he why, why is he fighting <laughs> for those Rokugani? Uh, did you get the chance to play anything with siege at gen con or since then
1: i did i did i actually uh i actually picked up a copy of siege early and i played a couple of copies of siege with some friends and then i was actually one of the rokugani players for the very last one of the official siege tables
0: ah Um, and, and you guys then beat him back and saved the temple district
1: uh yes yes um
0: well i guess the temple and the military district correct Correct.
1: I was actually playing my main event tournament deck, which is not really well. Done. You know, a lot of people were like, "Oh, trying to to argue to metagame against the siege deck directly." Uh, ironically, I kind of did that by accident. I pulled out my uh, riot in the second city like moments before we started when I realized that I was running a card that was metagamed against my side. <laughs> and stuck in Panku, and uh, Reese got gold-screwed pretty hard running the the siege box, and uh, we beat him down on his first attack, and I got a turn four Panku on the board, and that was pretty much the end of that story.
0: That's one of the reasons I wanted to get in and play as both sides early in the weekend. One, I was just, you know, excited to get in there, but... I figured I I wanted to get in before people knew what all the meta stuff was, so I didn't have to deal with it as the Dark Naga, and so I didn't have to feel pressured, potentially, to have some warped monstrosity for Sunday. Like, this is my deck with Agasha, with Asako Kaitoku, XP, and three times in Circle Terrain, and no cards that are based on attacking ever, and... Right, right, yeah.
1: But no, I, I, outside of the fact that it's another Naga theme product, I think the Siege Box is excellent. I liked the versions of this that, um, that they did for the Warlord game in the long, long ago. And I think this is a pretty successful product. It's a much more fun multiplayer experience than War of Honor was. So I really recommend it to people who played any form of multiplayer L5R back in the ancient days of the game and would like to recreate that somehow. It's a pretty good game. The pre-constructed Rokagani decks have a little bit of trouble winning against the box if the, uh, if the Dark Naga player is pretty familiar with how the game plays. But with good but not specifically metagame to auto-win decks for the Rokagani, it's a really fun game.
0: Yes, I concur. Well, okay. I, I actually don't know about the pre-constructed decks, because I haven't done that, but I concur with the other stuff.
1: <laughs> the, the, the pre-constructed decks are a little funny. Um, one of them is Ray one of them's Ray Sensei Phoenix, which is not the best thing in the format. Really? <laughs> yeah. You're kidding me. No, I, I'm really- I'm really not. It's really
0: Ray Sensei Phoenix. <laughs> I- I- that's that's an amazing sensei and stronghold. Everyone loves them. That is that is
1: accurate. I am amazed by that sensei and stronghold.
0: <laughs> uh, that is one way to put it. Okay. <laughs>
1: it just it suffers from the problem that it has too many moving parts. And you know, it it seems silly because, you know, since I, I, I came on here to talk about you know, primarily because I won this big deck event with a deck that's based primarily around fishing out a single card for me to then turn around and say that consistency and redundancy is what wins card games. But generally speaking, that's true. And the Phoenix box and the Race Sensei especially, they just require that you have too many moving pieces and it's too easy to break a link in that chain.
0: Yeah, and it's got minus one gold production and it it just does not give enough of a benefit to compensate for all those things.
1: And it has minus one gold production in an environment where economic curve is really, really important.
0: Yes, yes. We will have to see how that goes as well, and whether or not 4 for 4 holdings are just going to be gone.
1: (laughs) They sure look like they are. In Strict, we have one left, unless I've missed something. And it's a farm which carries the risks of getting hit by the amazing cards that also happen to have a ruinously destructive farm meta.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The possibly lose on turn two to Colonial Conscripts, Bountiful Fields, and then you've got Coastal Lane. Yeah. So, which I... Your other gold options are weak enough in, sh- in strict that that might just be worth it for having an increased chance of random, awesome start win.
1: With Coastal Lane, you know, because I, I approach this game from a deck construction and, and theoretical design standpoint a lot of the time. Coastal Lane's very interesting if, and only if, the stuff that your deck does is sufficiently generic that all you care about seeing are cards and the money to pay for those cards. If you care about which cards you see, Coastal Lane is probably not for you. But in decks like Spider Swarm is probably the canonical example that can make a benefit from Coastal Lane, because their people are, frankly, pretty universally terrible. I mean, She-Ho's really good, but hmm. if you're counting on... Really good. But if you're counting on She-Ho, you're not, you're not going to have a good day anyway and all the rest of their people are almost exclusively, almost completely interchangeable. It it doesn't matter. It matters that you have warm, or since some of them are undead, cold bodies on the table in sufficient numbers. And there's a few other decks in the environment that work like that, that. They don't care about seeing specific good cards. They just care about playing cards. If that's you, Coastal Lane's great. If it's not you... Coastal Lane means that you're gambling that you might see a better economy at the risk of maybe seeing crappier people, and that's not a good way to win.
0: I think you're actually managing to undersell the not amazing Spider player base, or not player base, the Spider <laughs> personality base. Yeah, they're not gonna, they're not gonna think that's a Freudian slip at all.
1: No, no, you'll get no hate mail because
0: of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, not at all disputing the spider a bad thing, but Tagatsu Kanishi is amazing, and people talk about him like he's terrible.
1: No, he's very good, but the spider.
0: <sighs> yeah, I don't. don't want plenty of I... other guys who are not good, but. <laughs> But that, which is kind of the point. I mean, I I think there actually are some standouts. I think, especially again, once it feels like once you get to strict, that's less of a thing because I feel at least like part of the reason why the overall spider personality base is pretty lousy in arc is because all their stuff from before Ivory is just mostly bad. They. they actually don't have a whole rack of bonkers guys from the past like some of the other clans are bringing in.
1: Yeah, the, the fact that they got functionally nothing in coils, uh, really hurts for, for Ark.
0: Yeah, as everybody seems to think, and hopefully it, it pans out, they, they seem to have much better chances in strict.
1: Yeah, there's, well, there's no purge, there's none of the crazy superhuman guys from coils. There's no Unsettling Gathering. That's sort of my standout for the for the card I've most wanted to go away in this arc. That and Cav Escort, but it did, so...
0: Yes, un- Unsettling is problematic, and I would say that Unsettling survives the, what do they call it, environmental correction, because one... It only has six months left well not only has four months left anyway before it's gone. Yeah. And also because it's a rare and not to the same extent as like Jade Berlin, but it's been a rare that people have had to go that people have gone out and paid actual money for, and that matters. It is easier to ban some common that wasn't worth anything anyway than to ban a card that people went out and paid, you know, $10 or whatever, a pop for, to get them to play during the Cote. I mean, there's a reason why, was it Jace the Mind Sculptor? Yes. Despite being absolutely, incredibly bonkers, survived so long, because he was a $120 card. And, okay, partially it was because they wanted to continue to move packs of Worldwake but partially it was because it's really rough to tell some guy that that $400 he just spent on a playset of a card... Is
1: totally worthless. ...is now banned.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Whereas it's very easy to tell him, yeah, that $0.40 that you spent on those comments... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. tragic
1: news about that. Nobody's going to (laughs) care. Exactly. Because the $10 card here is the $100 card for that game. Uh, Yeah. You know... And, and that's fine. That's fine. That's. I think that's one of the things that makes this game easier to get into.
0: Yes, you will never... Right, and I I think you can see that from... right Jade Pearl in. a lot of people have kind of hyperventilated about the so-called difficulty of obtaining Jade Pearl in. Jade Pearl Inn has never been difficult to obtain. It's just actually cost you money. Correct. It, right? It was a card that you had to go and do things like pay seventy or eighty dollars on eBay for a playset, which is far more than L5R cards usually get for that sustained a length of time, or at least it, or at least they have in a while, although I still think that ultimately that is to some extent a sign of health. Uh, yeah. that there's actually enough demand for a card to push it up to thirty dollars.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that I don't think that we want to see singles being three digits like some of the magic ultra rares do, um, but I think if we see cards that are are playable enough and universally playable enough that they that that we look at them as being twenty or twenty five dollar rares on the secondary market, and they're moving in volume at that price, that I think that that's a that that's probably reasonably healthy. I think that's an okay place for the secondary market of a CCG to be. Um, and L5Rs had cards in that money bracket in the past. You know, in the in the ancient days before the second day of thunder, uh, Gen Con, um one of the cards that was in that price there were several cards from uh, Crimson and Jade and Time of the Void that hung around in that price range for a considerable amount of time. Uh it's it's probably hard to believe to players who are are only in the game in the last few arcs, but but Wedge was a thirty-five or forty dollar card for quite some time.
0: Yeah. Evil Portance.
1: Evil Portance was easily that much.
0: Yeah. But yeah, and I I guess I'd prefer that cards achieve that without being as universal. I really would prefer that there is never any card that's actually as almost universal as jade prolin is i don't know how healthy that is not like jade prolin is a warping card to be have played everywhere except to the extent that it makes one gold holdings that aren't brilliant cascade and playable but still i i don't know if i want any one card showing up in 75% of tournament decks
1: yeah but if it's going to be something i i think i'd like it to be to be economics you know right now all the clans except two live in the same economic world and so if those clan if most of those decks develop similar looking economic structures i don't think that's necessarily a problem and with jade pearl in i think that i do like the fact that it lets you toolbox a little bit that you can run, you know, the the toolboxing feature of, of Jay, Jade Perlin sort of went away with Bookkeeper, where the toolbox is now, hey, I think I'll go get the thing that makes me a huge volume of money throughout the course of this game. <laughs> but the idea behind something like Jade Perlin, where, where you might run your set of Jade Perlins and then two or three... You one unique one for one. You know, not not literally unique, but that you run as single card slots. So depending on their board stake your opponent, you go get a Yukikimi's Hot Spring, or you go get a Shigemitsu's court, or you go get a Hita Advisor, or you go get I don't even remember because there's a bunch of them and I don't play them. But um that's interesting, and that's a, that's a deck design complexity that we don't normally get to see. And I like that. I, I like things that make the deck-building aspect of this game more complicated. If I didn't, I wouldn't be a big, big deck supporter.
0: <laughs> okay. We are reaching what I like to, to call my uh, editing time tolerance threshold. Certainly. No, no, no. Don't apologize. I can talk forever. I just know that I have this horrid, horrible sinking feeling when I look at one of the files and like, oh my god, we talked for an hour and forty-five minutes because we we used to do that, but it turns out that this whole kids thing really is uh, time time, time socket. I
1: I I have heard that. Yeah, and <laughs> and, and there are probably fewer listeners who are super excited about posting a two-hour podcast or something crazy like that. I'm I'm probably not that
0: interesting. Um, (laughs) Well, no, I I, I wouldn't say that. I, I don't really know. I think that, in general, people are more interested in podcasts that are not super massively long. On the other hand... There certainly are some specialty things that drop two hour podcasts every time, but you know, I'm not hardcore history, so. Right, right. <laughs> All right. So I, uh, we've covered a lot. Do you have uh, anything else you wanted to, to get out when you've got the, you got this. Little captive audience for you here.
1: Absolutely. Um, we're still probably about a week out from the official go live date for it, but in preparation for 2016's Return of the Naga as a playable faction to the game, I am going to be administering NagaClan.com. That's going to be, like I said, going live in about a week with the goal of it joining the rest of the clan forums as a place to discuss storyline and strategy and the game in general.
0: It is September 11th as we are recording that, so keep that in mind when you're hearing that week. Who knows, it might already be up by the time you hear this. Correct, correct. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks for coming on, Chris.
1: Hey, thank you very much for having me.
0: Not a problem. You've been listening to Strange Assembly. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or by visiting our website at www.strangeassembly.com. You can hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangeassembly or at strangeassembly on Twitter. You can email me, but not that other Chris, just me, if you send it to chris at strangeassembly.com. I always do enjoy hearing from you. But until then, for Chris Justice, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.